Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The Streams of Winter, live stream 24. Barristan Selmy. Hello and welcome to The Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much for tuning in to our live stream this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about a character who gained a POV in A Dance of Dragons, a warrior with a rich backstory who has devoted much of his long life to protecting kings and queens. It's Barristan Selmy, everyone. In Dance, we follow the trials and tribulations of Daenerys in Marine, where Barristan advises her as Lord Commander of her Queensguard. Following her marriage to Hisdar Zolorak, Danny presides over the reopening of Dasnak's pit, where Drogon makes an appearance and whisks her away to the Dothraki Sea. This leaves Barristan in the city to speak in her voice, and we gain great insight into his character with the introduction of his POV chapters. How has Barristan juggled honour and duty? What difficulties has he faced since Daenerys' flight? And what awaits him in the Winds of Winter? These are all huge questions. And so to help me answer, here's the other half of Radio, Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Yes. Hello. Hi, everyone. Happy Saturday and uh, welcome. Happy to see you here. Happy to be talking about Barristan. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. And I'm also happy to welcome our special guest today, uh, Arjun from Deep Into History. Welcome to Radio Westeros. We're so happy to have you. We've been talking about this episode for quite a while, haven't we? We have. Um, I'm thrilled to be here on the one and only Radio Westeros. It's truly an honor to speak uh, Song of Ice and Fire with both of you and be a guest on my favorite podcast in your live stream. I love your audience. I love your show. We go way back. So this should be really fun. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. Uh, we're ready to go. We got a packed document here with lots of great thoughts about Barristan. So we'll uh, shoot it back over you, Yoke Boy. Get us started. Yeah, let's begin. So I have cooked up about a dozen questions about Barristan as we think about where he's going to be in the Winds of Winter. So to start off with, Barristan Selmy is an older character with, as I said, a rich history and backstory. So what aspects of his past are notable and how have they shaped his character to make him the man that we see on page? Lady Gwyn, why don't you get us going? Yeah, so to 
really get us going on the conversation on his past, I just I want to lay out that I really see his past as having three main chapters. You get the period of from Barrist in the Bold, which is was his first appearance in attorney at 10 years old, up to when he slew Melis the Monstrous on the Stepstones during the War of the Nine Penny Kings. I have a quote here from Dance with Dragons, which basically outlines what he went through in those years. It says, Barrist and Selmy had known many kings. He had been born during the troubled reign of Aegon the Unlikely, beloved by the common folk, had received his knighthood at his hands. Aegon's son Jaehaerys had bestowed the white cloak on him when he was three and twenty after he slew Maelys the Monstrous during the War of the Nine Penny Kings. So this was a time of reputation building, laying the foundation for the day when Bran Stark would think of him as the greatest living knight, keeping company with legendary figures like Serwin of the Mirror Shield, Rhyme Redwine, and Aemon the Dragon Knight, not to mention his own former brother-in-arms, Sir Arthur Dane. And then chapter two, there's the time of his service in the King's Guard, in particular, his service to Ares II, including uh, the rescue from Duskendale, which he thinks Duskendale had been his finest hour, yet the memory tasted bitter on his tongue. So this is a time of preserving that reputation that he had spent so long building, internal struggle outward justification about all the events and things that are going on during the reign of Ares II. Those years have a huge impact on the man he is today, and we're going to be talking a lot more on that subject in a moment. And then uh, finally, you got fighting beside Rhaegar, whom he clearly admired at the Trident, and then being taken into service by the man who killed Rhaegar. Uh, going by his words to Danny when Aristan is revealed to be Barrist and Selmy, that decision really haunted him. He says, I took Robert's pardon. I, I served him in Kingsguard and Council, served with the Kingslayer and others near as bad who soiled the white cloak I wore. Nothing will excuse that. But when Danny asked him to explain his choice, his answer revealed the conflict that he really struggled with. Some truths are hard to hear. Robert was... A good knight, chivalrous, brave. He spared my life and the life of many others. Prince Viserys was only a boy. It would have been years before he was fit to rule. And forgive me, my queen, but you asked for truth. Even as a child, your brother Viserys oft seemed to be his father's son in ways Rhaegar never did. So it was a time of choosing, and he first chose chose Rhaegar over uh, Robert. Uh, well, he actually, the other way around, <laughs> he chose Robert over Rhaegar, Robert over Viserys. Uh, again, something that he obviously struggled with, and he likely hoped that his decision to serve Robert rather than facilitate another potentially disastrous Targaryen ruler like Ares, who he's, whose actions he had struggled with for so long, uh, would help to kind of wipe out the shame that he felt in those years serving Ares. But far more troubling to Barristan than his decision to serve Robert are the deaths of the people he'd sworn to protect over the course of his career. It was his failures that haunted him at night. Jaehaerys, Ares, Robert, three dead kings, Rhaegar, who would have been a finer king than any of them, Princess Elia and the children, Aegon, just a babe, Rhaenys with her kitten, dead every one. Yet he still lived, who had sworn to protect them. And now Daenerys, his bright, shining child queen, She's not dead. I will not believe it. So Danny was and is Barristan Selmy's last chance at honor. 
in a very real sense. And so when Danny flies away, he relives all those cascading failures of all the deaths that have occurred on his watch in the past. His present decision-making continues to be informed by his past and his desire for redemption to right the wrongs of his own past are going to certainly be a huge factor in his future. And, you know, all of these factors make him the man he is and have just huge, huge impact on his thoughts and actions in dance and more than likely in wind as well. Absolutely. Those are all great points in defining him, Lady Gwyn. I think that Barristan is best understood in the way that he's first described in his very first tourney when he was 10 at Blackhaven, which he entered as a mystery knight. When he was revealed, Prince Duncan jousted with him and declared, a boy, a bold boy, thus earning his honorific, Barristan the Bold. Always bold and a full force multiplier on any battlefield, he seems to have never lost the innocence of that boy. Consider the way he relates to the world around him through the course of his life until he becomes Queen's Guard to Danny. He's a true believer in one thing, or perhaps two, his vows to fight as a knight and then as a King's Guard. It is almost as if he believed that if he stuck to them and remained a perfect knight, it would somehow make the world around him better as if being the perfect example of Westerosi chivalry would result in the best outcomes for society as a whole. And he is not wholly wrong. As, as Lady Gwen alluded to, Bran said that Bran and, sh and like other children in Westeros surely look up to him as the, like the, the greatest living knight. Also, um, notably characters like Eddard Stark, who, who we could consider honorable to the point of naivety, look at him in the same light. The problem is that the rest of the world does not operate like that. They don't operate by the same code. They play the same lip service to chivalry and the vows of honor that medieval knights did or even samurai. This seems to be like a blind spot in his character. All the illustrious deeds that Lady Gwen mentioned make him a hero by any metric. But this also reinforces that innocent belief in the code for him to live by and conduct himself. His life in the King's Guard, during which he saw so much pain, suffering, and constant violation of honor by those he was sworn to protect and their advisors, had largely little impact on him. For most of his life, it was because those very vows he swore and believed that protected his innocence because he was just only doing his duty. His vows became a shield, and it was only after the dismissal from the King's Guard, his world shattered, free from the vows that he allowed himself introspection. He, he learned bitterly that he could no longer be an innocent bystander and had to take a hand in restoring the realm. Um, yeah, great points, guys. And yeah, you both gave such comprehensive answers, but I'll add, add a bit of my own on. In A Dance with Dragons, with the addition of his point of view, we learn more about Baristan's internal world. One aspect of his history that seemed to shape him was the apparent death of Ashara Dane, and it, it seems that Barristan was in love with her. He still recalls her fondly to this day, as we see in this quote. Even after all these years, Sir Barristan could still recall Ashara's smile, the sound of her laughter. He had only to close his eyes to see her, with her long dark hair tumbling about her shoulders and those haunting purple eyes. We soon learn that he blamed himself for Ashara's demise, thinking that if only he had unhorsed Rhaegar at the tourney of Harrenhal, fate would have unfurled a lot differently. 
there's certainly question marks over Baristan's understanding of women, I think. And these memories make us wonder if he is reminiscing with an almost childlike naivety about the whole situation. Either way, it's an interesting part of his backstory that enriches his character due to the layer of internal conflict that he causes. And yeah, there's lots of internal conflict as we're going to see today. Okay, so moving on to my next question. After being initiated into the Kingsguard at age 23, Baristan served King Jaehaerys II. Following the death of Jaehaerys, Ares II ascended to the throne and before long began to exhibit signs of madness. This put Baristan in a tight spot, given his duty to protect and serve the king. So let's discuss the dilemma Barristan faced with relation to the theme of honour versus duty. How this theme highlights the tensions inherent in being a knight of the king's guard and how that difficulty has manifested and weighed upon him up to the present day. Take us away, Lady Gwyn. Well, you know, Barristan is obviously haunted by his service to Ares when he thinks about how he received his white cloak from Jaehaerys, the quote that I uh, used earlier, it continues on, in that same cloak, he had stood beside the Iron Throne as madness consumed Jaehaerys' son Ares, stood and saw and heard and yet did nothing. Duskendale, as I mentioned, was both a great triumph, but also a source of shame. He repeatedly thinks positively about Rhaegar, who in his estimation would have been a finer king than any of the rest. And I want to point out that any of the rest includes Aegon the Unlikely, who knighted him. So if he thinks very highly of Rhaegar, and he also thinks if he had not gone into Duskendale to rescue Ares from Lord Darkwind's dungeons, the king might well have died there as Tywin Lannister intended. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not what it says. It says, as Tywin Lannister sacked the town, then Prince Rhaegar would have ascended the Iron Throne, mayhaps to heal the realm. So there's a deep sense of regret about his service as a king's guard and where that service was in direct opposition to his knightly vows. It says he did his duty some nights. Sir Barristan wondered if he had not done that duty too well. He had sworn his vows before the eyes of gods and men, but he could not in honor go against them. But the keeping of those vows had grown hard in the last years of King Aerys's reign. He had seen things that it pained him to recall, and more than once he wondered how much of the blood was on his own hands. So duty versus honor is a theme explored in so many character arcs in this saga and so many different ways. And strangely enough, perhaps the one that's most similar to Barristan's experience is that of Jamie Lannister. They share a similar background and they struggled with the same exact conflicts in the Kingsguard as knights, but with markedly different results. Now in Marine, Barristan hmm, becomes, if not a king slayer, a king breaker, uh, because of that parallel with a person whom he absolutely loathes, it's very easy to see that his Dar's fate, which Barristan may not have any control over in the end, much like Ares's, is going to be the center point of Barristan's Winds of Winter arc. I believe even more so than Danny's fate that the Winds of Winter is going to concern 
as far as Barristan goes, what happens with his star and how far that parallel with Jamie Lannister can be taken. Well, I think we can understand his struggle and how he shielded himself, shielded himself from the conflict within by the advice that his Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Sir Gerald Hightower, gave to Jamie after they witnessed the torture and murder of Brandon and Rickard Stark. He, he said, you swore a vow to guard the king, not judge him. That was clearly the ethos of the King's Guard of that era, and most likely during the reigns of terrible kings like Aegon the Unworthy. What this does it is that it allows a Kingsguard to have his vows to the Brotherhood and the King supersede his knightly vows and his own sense of honor, because it all becomes irrelevant. The Kingsguard vows turns one into an instrument of the King's will. In Sir Barristan's case, he was a true believer in both of his sworn vows. He used his Kingsguard vows to shield himself from his sense of honor and chivalry, which were deeply entwined with his knightly vows. In Essos, we begin to see him come out from behind that shattered shield. Danny asks him for stories of her family, which turns him into an, an advisor after a time. For the first time in his life, he begins to have agency, um, a voice in policy, a true knight to a true ruler. And Danny sets him free, the exact same way that she sets free the people. But after Danny is taken away from the city from Drogon, we see in his recollections that one of his main regrets was that Rhaegar did not confide in him about his plans at the tourney of Harrenhal, for the very reason that he did not want to put Barristan into a position where he would have to question his vows. I believe that this, more than anything, though tragic in his mind, is the reason that he was so certain that Rhaegar would be a great king, and he sees the same quality in Daenerys. Excellent points, guys. And I, I think the theme of honour versus duty in Barristan's story, especially the moments where he was really tested, served to paint him as a character who has become consumed by his duty at some points. He feels lost without it, exemplified ironically by his switching of allegiance to Daenerys after Joffrey retires him from the Kingsguard. The fact that his sort of addiction to servitude and duty is so often punctuated by incidents where he was expected to forego his basic knightly honour shows us the conflict and sometimes hypocrisy of knighthood, even from the well-intentioned with a character like Sandor Clegane demonstrating and pointing out these contradictions, George is dispelling the myth of the white knight and the perfect chivalrous soul to show us how such ideals become exploited and corrupted when brought adjacent to large amounts of power. Okay, so Barristan fought well at the Trident during Robert's Rebellion. No surprise there. He's a great warrior, yet he was wounded by the rebels. The same battle saw Prince Rhaegar Targaryen slain by Robert Baratheon as the tide of war swept against the Loyalists. Despite Roose Bolton's counsel that the captive Barristan should be executed on the spot, Robert had him treated by his own maesters. Soon Barristan found a place as Lord Commander of the new, new King's White Cloaks. So what aspects of this story are pertinent to his dance arc and what does the defection say about Barristan's character? Arjun. 
After so long in the service to the Mad King, being exposed to every imaginable depravity, for Barristan, Robert Baratheon must have seemed like the answer to the dilemma of his life. During the war, news of Robert's chivalry, turning enemies into allies, and the way he, the common people loved him and protected him at Stony Sept would surely have been well known to Sir Barristan. Then, to witness the demon of the trident in action and battle, how he led, how he fought, how he inspired. And then, even though Robert fought against him and was wounded himself, he sent his maesters to heal Barristan. The Lord of Storm's End in that moment would have been seen as the pinnacle of chivalry, one that would make a true king and set the tone for a new, more noble Kingsguard, more honorable Kingsguard. Thus, I don't see it so much as a defection, as a fond hope that the codes he lived by were correct. It must have been a wonderful feeling for him, one that overshadowed the deaths of the royal family. Sadly, we know what Robert became, but the quest for finding his true ruler, chasing that feeling, must have been that he had in those first months of service to Robert as Lord Commander are what ultimately led him to Daenerys. Now that he has found her, he will live until he dies being her true knight without a guilty conscience. And to have a character so dutiful and loyal turn cloak not only once but twice in the story so far is almost a little comedic, I think. It shows us that Barristan's true loyalty, perhaps, is not necessarily to the royalty who he would gladly die to protect, but perhaps to his own need to be dutiful. Barristan seems almost selfless in his desire to protect, but the truth might be that he's filling his own needs foremost. With the development later in the story that Aegon Targaryen is invading Westeros with the Golden Company and with Daenerys poised to invade Westeros with a giant horde of Dothraki at her back sometime in the upcoming novel. How long before Baristan begins to contemplate whether he has picked the right Targaryen? He was initially aiming to serve Viserys after all. I don't think this necessarily means that he will turn cloaks again, more that it will add a further layer of confusion perhaps and doubt to his inner conflicts in his story. Lady Gwyn? Yeah, you know, Barristan made a conscious choice of Robert over Viserys after the Trident. His six fellow Kingsguard who served Ares also made similar conscious choices Lewin Martell and John Derry, Derry chose Rhaegar and died at his side. And the three at the Tower of Joy chose Rhaegar's surviving son over Viserys and died defending him. And Jaime, having made his choices regarding Ares and been judged harshly for it, opted out of any more choosing. He's basically said, all right, you guys make the choices. I'm tapping out here. Barristan made a choice that you know, he found to be the honorable one. You guys made great points about that. And uh, that choice, I think, was also, in some respects, a statement on his service. In choosing Robert, it's almost like Barristan said, hey, look, I serve the throne, not the actual guy that sat on it. So don't blame me for what the last guy did. But he's also a rule follower, one who thinks repeatedly that life was much easier when he had a lord commander to make choices for him 
rather than being the one that had to make the choices. He finds moral conundrums particularly difficult, and he tends to second-guess himself. Did he do the right thing rescuing Ares? Was one man's life worth the price that was ultimately paid? Was Robert a worthy choice? Would Viserys have been the right choice after all? So if Danny does anything at all morally questionable, uh, in Barristan's eyes, uh, even if it's leading a horde of savages to Westeros, the Dothraki, I mean, keeping in mind the typical Westerosi prejudices against the Dothraki in particular and, you know, other foreigners in general, as Yogboy said, it is probably not going to be long before he begins to question his current role, you know, more than he already does, or maybe in a different way than he already does. I agree with Yogboy. I don't think he's going to change sides or anything, but I, I just think this is going to lead to more, if it comes to that sort of thing, it's going to lead to more questioning and those inner debates with himself that characterize his his POV chapters in Dance with Dragons. Yeah, and now we've talked about his days in the Kingsguard, why don't we talk about the Queensguard? After being unceremoniously dumped from Joffrey's Kingsguard, Barristan defies ageism and seeks out Viserys Targaryen, who he aims to serve. However, Viserys is dead when Barristan arrives in Essos or thereabouts, and instead he is sent by Illyrio to protect Daenerys, whom he quickly becomes devoted to. So I'd like to know what you guys think. What about serving Daenerys does he enjoy and what doesn't he like? Well, Danny, you know, as as is repeatedly mentioned by those who knew him, uh, is more like Rhaegar than she is like her father or Viserys. Barristan really admires this about her and he tells her she's the true-born heir of Westeros. But also, don't forget something that I think Yokeboy you alluded to earlier. Barristan thinks about how her eyes are the same color as the Sheridanes. So, and, and he's thinking about the love of his life there. So there's got to be a really deep affection that comes from that, that's almost visceral in nature, something that he can't really control. But it just, it is, it exists. While he certainly appreciates Danny's impulses to save people, it doesn't make his job any easier. And I'm thinking of her going out, you know, amongst the refugees with the pale mare and Barristan's kind of <laughs> freaking out because she's putting herself in this kind of danger. Plus, he truly, truly believes that she should be heading west, going back to Pentos, contacting potential supporters in war-torn Westeros in preparation for claiming what he thinks is her rightful throne. In his view, she has a real duty to Westeros and none whatsoever to the one that she's currently got herself entangled in. And he just, you know, he thinks about how they really don't belong there. They're Westerosi. They're, they should be in their own country. And so this part of it is, in spite of the fact that he's fighting her battles for her there and, and devoted to serving her, you know, that conflict is probably not going to go away. <laughs> absolutely. Lady Gwen, you're absolutely right. In Daenerys, he has found a combination of the two of the most pe important people in his life, Rhaegar and Ashara Dane. I know he loves being around the dragons and has developed an almost an avuncular affection for them. I don't think he likes Danny associating with sellswords, as the perception of them in Westeros as untru untrustworthy runs deep in him. I also believe he thinks that staying in, in the East is a mistake. 
that all of their energy, resources, and alliances should be aimed towards the goal of taking the Iron Throne. We see this in how favorably he speaks of the offer of the Dornish alliance. You can almost tell, it's almost palpable that he wishes that, you know, Sir Barris, Garris Drinkwater was the, was the king because he knew Danny would go for it, you know? <laughs> Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. <laughs> yeah, true that. Excellent point, Arjun. And Barristan finds a city of marine with its customs and its people quite alienating. He can't wait to get home to Westeros, to more familiar pastures, where he might feel more comfortable at home. In his time by Daenerys' side, he seems to dislike making any kind of political decisions, and we're going to talk a lot more about that later. He is a true fish out of water when she leaves the city and he began he begins to speak in her voice really because he has to. Political dilemmas are thrown at him in succession and he thinks quite honestly and in parallel to Ned Stark in King's Landing that he has no skill in unravelling such knots. Well, at least he's not deluding himself there. So there's that. On the other hand, Baristan relishes any activity related to martial conflict and preparing for battle, which is quite understandable given the rich history that we've touched upon, he begins to train some of the freedmen in the art of knighthood and seems proud that he's nurturing a legacy that will one day benefit his queen. He trains soldiers to fight the Westerosi way, leaving his imprint, and he even anoints new knights from among his most promising squires. And as he rides out to command the defence of the city in the Battle of Fire, it's noted that he's beginning to feel like himself again. You know, this is where he belongs, on the battlefield. The martial world is second nature to him. It's part of his self-concept. And he probably still yearns for the heroic glory he achieved earlier in his life. And... As Daenerys storms through Slaver's Bay, upending the grim slave trade at every turn, the intricate politics of Marine are daunting even for a born leader like Daenerys. In A Dance with Dragons, Daenerys is whisked away from the city on the back of Drogon and suddenly Barristan is expected to make crucial leadership decisions, as I said, 
just now. In her stead, what sort of political problems does Barristan face? What decisions does he make? And how would we rate his performance as the de facto Westerosi leader in Marine for that time, Lady Gwynne? Well, he faces really the, the worst sort of political problem, conspiracy and collusion. And he is such a concrete person that this is truly awful for him. Uh, we as readers can see how he's potentially being manipulated by the shave paint. But for some reason, Barristan has chosen to place a lot of trust in Skahaz, although he doesn't approach the deposing of his star at all lightly. He really struggles with it and, you know, has lengthy debates, internal debates about it. He does approach it from the standpoint of accepting the Shafe Pate's allegations more or less at face value. So while his political decisions are uh, thoughtful and they're cautious and they're informed by his decades of experience in observing rulers, he's conscious that he has little practical experience in ruling and in, you know, untangling the things that are sort of going on in the shadows. And like I said earlier, he second guesses himself frequently. As for rating his performance, I mean, he certainly made sound military decisions. You can't fault any of that. That is, like you said, it's second nature to him. But the outcome of the strictly political moves remains to be seen. If Skahaz, as I suspect, makes a move against his Dar while Barristan is outside the city with all of his troops, then we might yet learn that uh, his trust was misplaced and his decisions were absolutely disastrous. That's complete speculation for now, but given the abysmal track records of Lord Commanders of the Westerosi King's Guard who become hands of the king or queen, uh, which Barristan is acutely aware of, I think that this has real potential to play out badly in the Winds of Winter. Yeah, he really thinks about the the history of the hands and all the mes- mistakes, which is quite ominous, really. <laughs> and to to me, the interesting thing about Barristan's tenure in Marine without Daenerys is that he really is completely aware that he's out of his depth. If he himself realises this, you can bet those schemers around him who have made life so complex for the highly intelligent Daenerys, they can sense it too and will seek to capitalise on any weakness that they perceive. As I said earlier, there's major Ned Stark vibes when he was in King's Landing and he was a fish out of water. And when we learn more about the conspiracies and the plotting going on within the city, I think it will become clear that Barristan has been manipulated on several fronts, as Lady Gwynne was speculating upon there. I don't think it would be a realistic story, true to the characters of Marine and Barristan himself, if he comes out of this thick political situation looking like a decent leader. I just can't see it happening. Makes no sense. Expect twists and revelations by the end of proceedings, and ultimately Barristan will be judged for his shortcomings, not only by the reader, but potentially by Daenerys herself. Who knows what she will make of his titanic decision to arrest Hisdar, or if she will retain any sympathy for the man so clearly out of his depth. He saves his best leadership for military command, where he might 
make amends and really prove his worth to Daenerys. What do you think, Arjun? I agree with both of you completely. Politically is completely out of his depth in the Byzantine world of Marine. I think if we as readers can be relatively certain that he has made some major mistakes, though what those are for certain we don't know, we don't know yet. He looks at the world through his chivalric vows, none of which apply in Slaver's Bay. And as Yokeboy said, he knows he is out of his depth, yet he is smart enough to warn the Dornish to leave the city because they are in danger, something they don't seem to realize themselves. I do have a feeling that his military exploits will save him from incurring the worst of Daenerys' wrath, regardless of what he does. She understands that every action he will have taken will be measured against his sense of honor. Yes, so true. And during the pages of A Dance with Dragons, we see a protracted build-up of tension within the city and, and without, leading to the outbreak of a war which will spill over into the winds of winter. The manifold reasons behind the conflict are well covered by our extended Primer series, if you've heard some of those episodes. So let's focus on Barristan here. Given we have information from Barristan's sample chapters, how do we think Barristan is faring in the Battle of Fire? What military strategies will he adopt? And do we see him achieving victory on behalf of Daenerys? And uh, why don't I go first? I think Barristan really has to win the Battle of Fire. It's one of those things where situations where failure is simply not an option. And so the pressure on him is enormous. However, he does seem to relish the fight, and we see a great contrast to the man caught up in other people's webs within Marine. One of his major decisions is to ride out of the city walls and face the enemy in the field. The trebuchets are flinging diseased bodies into the city, and this was a major factor in his decision-making. He just wanted to rush out there and face them in the field rather than be pummeled with these diseased carcasses. And time will tell if this tactic will pay off, but I think it does look promising so far. There's so much disorganisation in the opposition's ranks. There isn't time for Daenerys to return to the city with her Dothraki army before the war is out, I think. So Barristan must do this himself and he must use every tactic he can think of to defend the city and overcome the Yunkai. Okay, let's go deep. The Battle of Fire in many ways will be his defining moment as a warrior and a general, his masterpiece. Think about Barristan. He is a man like history's Pyrrhus Vapyrus or Gaius Marius, a man devoted to war finally in sole command of an army incapable as in battle as he is in single combat. What we do know for sure is that he plans to sally out from the wall, the protection of the walls of Marine with the primary objective of the destruction of the trebuchets that are raining death down on the city, literally, in this case, with the diseased bodies. The reason for this is that even if he cannot defeat the forces arrayed against him outright and he is forced to withdraw back to the city, if the catapults are destroyed, then the besiegers will have lost their ability to prosecute the siege. Barristan has arrayed his forces thusly. The brazen beasts are to hold the city, most likely arrayed as archers on the city walls to provide cover fire for any advance or retreat. The rest of his forces are divided between the four main city gates. The stalwart shields are at the eastern gate, the mother's men at the south gate, and the free brothers at the north gate. 
These forces look to be primarily holding forces to keep the enemy locked in place and unable to respond to Barristan's main assault. This will come from the West Gate, where he has the Unsullied, perhaps two to three hundred pit fighters, and the Stormcrows, excellent like cavalry. This Western Front, with his most formidable units, is where he has decided that the battle will be won. After his epic speech, he leads a cavalry charge at the Trebuchet Herodon. This is designed to surprise the enemy and buy the Unsullied the time they will need to form their shield wall. This is in essence a phalanx of the early Greek style. Men lined up with shields overlapping and spears lowered in front of them from, from the first few ranks. Given the numbers of Unsullied, approximately 10,000, and the fact that they are using spears, not longer pikes, it is safe to assume that their battle line will be approximately 1,000 men across and 10 ranks deep. This formation is a nightmare to face on, on any battlefield. Imagine trying to pet an angry porcupine and without getting stuck by a quill, and you'll have some idea. However, it takes time to form, and given the quality of the Unsullied, it should be nearly invincible head-on while moving forward. The problem with this for formation is that if it is attacked from any other direction, it can be decimated because it is not capable of turning to meet a new threat. Barrison is launching them in the direction of the other trebuchet in the west and plans to scatter the enemy with his riders that they are facing and then be free to ensure the integrity of the unsullied phalanx. A skilled commander, he is using every advantage the battlefield presents him, launching his attack at dawn so that the sun will be directly in the eyes of, his enemies he, of the enemies he is facing, blinding them of all but what is right in front of them. In human history, this one advantage has changed the course of the outcome of many battles, most notably during the Second Punic War. We know his charge is successful, in that it allowed the Unsullied to form the phalanx and move out to attack. We also know that Barrison and his riders take casualties, though they are doing incredibly well in battle. Yet just when um, he can turn his attention elsewhere, chaos ensues. Though, though, not, not for the defenders of um, though not for the defenders of Marine, as if sent from the seven above, the Iron Fleet, led by Victorian Greyjoy, attacks. Given the fact that they have complete strategic surprise and that the enemy are now surrounded, the western front of the battle looks to become a total victory. As to what happens next, there are so many wild cards, if you will. What will the dragons do? Will Dragonbinder be blown? And if so, what will happen? Will the Volantine fleet ju arrive just in time to seal Marine's doom? I look forward to finding out, but as it stands right now, it looks like Barristan Selmy will have the most glorious victory that will live on in song for ages. Yeah, yeah. Very, very well analyzed. Uh, thank you so much for that. And because you did such a fabulous job covering, you know, the thrust of the, the battle, I'm going to take you guys on a stream of consciousness journey for a minute. <laughs> So um, when it dawns on Barristan that the Ironborn are really on their side, flying the dragon banner, he's so excited. Uh, this is in the Winds of Winter sample chapter. And he's, you could see him literally almost jumping up and down for joy. Uh, he cites an example from Westerosi history, the hammer and the anvil. He's referencing the victory of Baylor Breakspear and Maycar Targaryen at the Redgrass Field during the first Blackfire Rebellion. So keep that in mind and bear with me for a minute while uh, we turn our thoughts to the Volantine fleet and we begin our kind of stream of consciousness journey through a couple of metatextual things I want to comment on. I'm pretty certain that far from being 
a threat to Marine and the salvation that the Yunkai are looking for, when the Valentine fleet, which we're told repeatedly is almost entirely crewed by slaves, uh, lands in Marine, we'll be seeing something known in Tropeland as the Cavalry Betrayal. You've all heard of the cavalry coming to the rescue. Well, this trope is the exact opposite of that. It needn't be actual cavalry, of course. George loves turning tables. We all know that. And we actually see this trope all the time in A Song of Ice and Fire. A few examples. Tywin coming to save King's Landing during Robert's Rebellion, but sacking the city as soon as they open the gates to him. Ned thinking he had the gold cloaks on his side right up until they turned on him and killed all his men. Then you have Ramsay Snow arriving at Winterfell just as Roger Cassell is on the verge of retaking the castle from Theon. This is a double because first, Ramsay betrayed the Northmen who thought he was there to support them, killed them all, and then when Theon opened the gate to him, uh, thinking he was there to save him, he came in and slaughtered all the Ironborn. So uh, you got the the Red Wedding, basically, uh, is a version of this trope. So loads of examples of this in A Song of Ice and Fire. It occurs in real life history. Arjun, you could probably think of quite a few if we put our minds to it. But I want to comment on an inversion of this that occurs in The Lord of the Rings, because that is one of George's main influences uh, in terms of fantasy literature. So In the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, when you're at the Battle of the Pelennor Field, the black ships of Umbar arrive, apparently bringing reinforcements to Sauron's army, who get all excited and jump up and down, much like Barristan does in the Battle of Fire. And unfortunately, actually turns out that those ships are carrying Aragorn and the men of southern Gondor come to relieve the army of Gondor. So this brings us back to where we started because George's description of the Red Battle of the Red Grass Field, which was part of Barristan's jumping up and down, just like those the uh, Sauron, Sauron's army is doing in Lord of the Rings, is lifted 100% from Tolkien's description of the Battle of Pelennor Field from the Hammer in the Anvil. Uh, Here's the quote from The Return of the King. East rode the knights of Dol Amroth, driving the enemy before them. South strode Eomir and his shield wall, and men fled before his face, and they were caught between the Hammer and the Anvil. And then you've got the red grass itself. Then the sun went at last behind Mindaluin and filled all the sky with a great burning so that the hills and the mountains were dyed as if with blood. Fire glowed in the river and the grass of the Pelennor lay red in the nightfall. So why do I mention all this? Not just because I love stuff like this, but because I find it fascinating that George has once again found a way to work this reference into his work and in such a very complex way. And... Since we make predictions here, I want to say do make out, uh, do look out for descriptions of uh, the red sands of marine in the winds of winter. So playing on that red grass, once again, only this time with sand. And I also do believe that Barristan's victory there is going to be as absolute as uh, those of Daron's army in the first Blackfire Rebellion and the men of the West in the return of the king. So thank you for tolerating my, <laughs> my little journey. 
Yeah, both both of you said great things there. Both of you answered so strongly in this section. Arjun, with your detailed military analysis and then the fantasy analysis from Lady Gwyn. Perfect. Okay, so let's move on. One thing we've been repeatedly highlighting recently in our Primer series and, and some of the live streams is the wealth of intersections poised to occur in Marine during the upcoming novel. Given Daenerys is still some way from returning to the city, Barristan is sure to treat with some of the incoming characters. So let's talk about these potential intersections. Why don't we begin with the Westerosi contingent? How will Barristan receive or be reacquainted with Westerosi characters like Victorian Greyjoy, Jorah Mormont and Tyrion Lannister, Lady Gwyn? Well, Jorah Mormont is going to be a very difficult one for him to accept. Not only has Jorah joined with the Second Sons, whose allegiance to Danny has changed three times so far, I believe. But the last time Jorah was in Daenerys' presence, her command to him was, do not ever presume to touch me again or to speak my name. You have until dawn to collect your things and leave this city. If you're found in Marine past the break of day, I will have strong Belwas twist your head off. I will believe that. So that is very strong. But Jorah uh, is undeniably persona non grata inside Marine. So Barristan could try to order Jorah's arrest for daring to return, but with Brown Ben Plum on his side, the dilemma might be that Barristan can't actually touch him, but look for no trust there. We don't know anything about what he thinks of Tyrion, but we do know what Tyrion fears Barristan might think. Uh, here's a quote. He could not imagine Barristan the Bold greeting him with anything but hostility. Selmy had never approved of Jamie's presence in his precious King's Guard. Before the rebellion, the old knight thought him too young and untried. Afterward, he had been known to say that the Kingslayer should exchange that white cloak for a black one. And his own crimes were worse. Jamie had killed the madman. Tyrion had put a quarrel through the groin of his own sire, a man Sir Barristan had known and served for years. So, don't look for this one to go any better than Jorah, though they are going to have the same protection in, in Brown Ben Plum. I think probably just a little more so for Tyrion, given the mountain of promissory notes that Ben Plum is holding for him. But uh, I certainly don't see Barristan receiving Tyrion with open arms at first. As for Victarion Greyjoy... I think it's pretty clear that Barristan doesn't know much about the Greyjoys, but since he was part of the fight subduing the islands in Balon's Rebellion, we can only speculate that he's going to be a little wary of Victarion's intentions, especially since he's got a pretty alarming companion with him in the person of the Red Priest, Makoro. So all three of these men will presumably have fought for Daenerys in the battle, with Victarion's timely appearance and the second sons turning on the young Kai, arguably being deciding factors in what's looking to be a complete Marinese victory. So it's not only possible, but likely, given how little he enjoys complex decision-making, that Barristan will simply defer any actual judgment of these three to Danny until Danny returns, based, based on the service that they've 
just recently uh, given her. Excellent points. Like This is actually one of the moments I'm looking forward to most in wins. And I think it will happen like this simply because it is too tantalizing not to write, even if it only lasts for a very few pages. Hear me out. Tyrion, Victarion, and Barristan, the first triumvirate of Marine. An alliance of political and military necessity. Barristan will need them to handle the aftermath of the battle. Assuming, of course, that Victarion doesn't have um, Dragonbinder blown, which I don't think will happen right away. There are many wild cards, but assuming that the Battle of, Battle of Fire is won conventionally, without the use of blood magic or Viking dragon riders, the three men will have to meet and come to some sort of understanding. In addition to being Westerosi and Essos, they all want to serve or speak with Daenerys. Knowing these characters as we do, we can almost see Tyrion using his wits to become the dominant member while playing the two against each other, playing for time until Danny returns. As for Jorah, I agree with Lady uh, Gwen. Judgment will be deferred until Danny returns. His relationship with Tyrion should protect him, and Barristan knows how close they were at one point. He will wait for her. Yeah, and good answers. And there there are some opinions on the Westerosi intersections. And but it doesn't end there. There's just so many characters in and around Marine in the start of Winds of Winter. Marine itself has become a complicated hive of plots and conspiracy, with locusts being poisoned, dragons loosed, and a terrorist group stalking the streets by night. After the arrest of Hisdar, Barristan faces further difficulties as he's expected to unravel the knot spun by the local characters, such as Hisdar, the Shafate, the Green Grace, and Resnak Mo Resnak. What do we think will happen within the city after the war has been fought with regard to the local politics? And how will Barristan be involved in all of this? Arjun? Well... This question is tricky, as even though I've read Winds many times, I'm not sure I fully uh, grasp the complex web of alliances and conspiracies going on within Marine. This is where Tyrion will be instrumental in unraveling them for us. And like once Tyrion has revealed these conspiracies, I think Barristan will be the one to give the orders to arrest the guilty parties at Tyrion's suggestion. This is how Tyrion will become Hand of the Queen before he ever meets her. Yeah, that's, I've never heard that. That's actually quite interesting to think that he could sort of employ Tyrion to do his bidding and Tyrion could, you know, return the favour of being promoted. <laughs> what do you think, Lady Wynne? That's a two-way street. Okay, I um, well, I alluded to this a few minutes ago. Uh, I think you've got a real possibility that what happens inside the city while the battle is being fought is going to be something that matters very, very much. For all the care and caution Barristan has put into his decision-making, what will any of it matter if Skahaz, for instance, goes rogue the moment he's left inside the city? Like, what if he kills his star Or the child hostages? Both things that he's expressed repeatedly that he would like to do. And he's now in control of the city, with his brazen beasts and everybody else is outside the walls as Archon laid out for us. So these would be things that Barristan has expressed extremely strong opinions about, as in 
no, <laughs> I will not support any of that. Uh, and both king slaying and child killing have very strong resonance with his past, with Robert's Rebellion. These are the things that he found most despicable about that conflict, that he thinks about repeatedly, and having to deal with those things again now in Marine seems like it would be a very Georgish thing to write. But there are, of course, other possibilities, like what if it's the sons of the harpy who start killing people when Barristan leaves? How safe is Missandei, really? Strong Belwes is still inside the city. Whatever happens, I feel like Marine is going to be a bigger shit show inside the walls when the battle is over than it was before. And Barristan is going to be stuck right there in the thick of it. But as Arjun says, enter Tyrion Lannister and his overlarge brain to help Barristan unravel it all and decide how to clean it up and make himself indispensable to Danny's service, even in her absence, before she even knows he's there. So, you know, all hope is not lost for Barristan, but a lot of uh, very negative things could go down <laughs> while he's got his back turned. Yeah, I do like this idea. It's definitely growing on me and... It, you know, it give Tyrion a sort of immediate purpose, which he's been lacking. So it could benefit, it could benefit, uh, you know, a number of characters if that's what happens. And although Baristan is likely to face impossible dilemmas in Marine, we as readers realise that Daenerys is alive and at some point she's almost certainly going to be returning to the city. Baristan just needs to think keep things ticking over in marine she only has to win the battle of fire first but when <laughs> easy she... it's all easy <laughs> yeah <laughs> all in a day's work but when daenerys does return this is another major intersection perhaps barristan faces a reckoning of some sort he has acted in her name made important strategic decisions and gone to war for her. But how do we think Daenerys will view Barristan's performance and how? what's the future of their relationship, Arjun? Well, we are likely to see a drastically changed Daenerys when she returns. I say this because in now, until now, she has doubted herself at times, many times. And due to her focus on running Marine, she is not truly bonded with Drogon. When this link is truly formed, we will get to see her as a true Targaryen ruler for the first time, a dragon rider. In that context, I believe her concern and intention will be solely focused on conquering her birthright, the Iron Throne. As such, barring something drastic, which would be greatly out of character for Barristan, such as reinstating slavery, I think Daenerys will be quite understanding, if not indifferent to the circumstances of Marine, as long as she still rules it and her forces are victorious. Unless... Tinfoil, tinfoil hat time. Dragon binder doesn't bind dragons, but instead binds slaves, in which case she might just burn it all down. <laughs> Optimistic. Well, I, I think I agree with Arjun that Daenerys will be changed in the Winds of Winter. I think she's been brought into the Dothraki Sea and given all this space and contrast to being in the city to grow her character. So when she returns to the city... I think she's going to be primed to invade Westeros and move on from these impossible problems of Slaver's Bay. She might not be 
impressed with Barristan's political decisions, and it might be that he's overstepped his mark in some respects, especially with Hisdar, but it's possible that with her new attitude and new resolve and order of priorities, she would be willing to overlook Barristan's failures within the city, given that he was never really employed to make such drastic decisions in the first place. If he can strike a major victory in the Battle of Fire, Daenerys might be suitably impressed and with her ambition to strike for Westeros, where Barristan knows the lay of the land, so to speak, she might think him an indispensable member of her team. If Danny is to be successful, she needs to surround herself with the right people, commanders, advisors, experts, and in military matters, Baristan is all of those things. Yeah, are you right? Maybe maybe what she needs is a triumvirate <laughs> of advisors. I really don't see Danny judging Barristan too harshly about anything he's specifically done so far. I mean, he's gone very far out of his way to save Dario, after all. Uh, that might make her pretty happy. Uh, not to mention fighting and hopefully winning a war in her name. She might question his agreement to uh, conquer Pentos for the Tattered Prince, but that's in the future yet. He hasn't actually done that. He's just said he might do it in the same way that Tyrion has agreed to give mountains of gold to everyone in the Second Sons. I think that's kind of a promise that may or may not be fulfilled. However, um, even though there are all these things that Barristan hasn't done, but that have happened on his watch, even though Danny herself is the one who planted the idea of dragon riding in Quentin's head, uh, if something were to happen, to one of her dragons as a result of Quentin's failed plot. You know, I think her perspective might be that Barristan was the one who failed to stop it, allowed it to happen. Uh, And then there's a couple of other things she might blame him for unjustly. Uh, Jorah's return could be a source of friction. Remember, like I said, he was banished on penalty of death. So if Barristan accepts him back into the city, that could take some explaining. She could be pretty aggravated by that, and <laughs> to say the least. And finally, if the uh, Sons of the Harpy kill anyone precious to her, or if Hisdar happens to die while he's in custody, something that Barristan approved, at least the imprisonment, um, those are all things that she could lay at his door. You know, in short, while he hasn't actually done anything yet that she could punish him for, Quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, There are actually quite a few things that have happened or could happen that he could kind of catch a sort of passive blame for uh, that I think we want to watch out for her judgment when she at last returns. And Barristan, as we said, I think at the start of the episode, he initially sought out Viserys because he held some sort of deep-seated loyalty to House Targaryen. But in dance, young Griff was revealed, ostensibly at least, to be a hidden Targaryen, now coming to the fore and vying for power in Westeros and eventually going for the Iron Throne. Given that this development could lead to conflict between Daenerys and Aegon, what do we think Barristan will make of the re-emergence of John Connington and Aegon and co.? 
Well, I think you'll be deeply skeptical of both of them, particularly after he learns that they are leading the Golden Company. Barristan slew Malleus the Monstrous in single combat during the War of the Ninepenny Kings. He also knows that the Golden Company exists to put a black fire on the Iron Throne. He could be instrumental in helping Danny realize that Aegon is the Mummer's Dragon that Quaith warned her of. He is also the one person, besides John Connington, that knew Rhaegar well enough to possibly look at Aegon and tell if he is his son. If Barristan lives to confront them in person, it could be one of the most tense moments in the series so far. For him, the hatred of Blackfire pretenders is real and visceral. I'm truly looking forward to when he hears the news. I I believe so much will depend on Tyrion and if he chooses to vouch for young Griff, because by that time he should be Hand of the Queen or at least a top advisor. After having dealt with the aftermath of the Battle of Fire, Barristan and Tyrion will have a healthy respect for one another. Tyrion is the hinge factor in this, and I cannot wait to find out what what happens. I definitely agree with you about that. And I am really fascinated by the idea that Barristan could be kind of a conduit of information from the past, which that leads Danny to realizing that Aegon is a pretender. However, I do expect some deep soul searching when he first hears about this, as he wonders if John Connington was somehow entrusted with the child by Rhaegar himself. Because don't forget, the details of the situation are likely to be extremely fuzzy. Uh, Connington is cited not only as dear to Rhaegar by Barristan at one point, but he was banished by Ares and left Westeros not long before the sack. So the timing would, you know, would kind of line up, meaning Barristan could find the story just plausible enough by filling in some details of his own or making some assumptions. And wouldn't that just knock him into a tailspin of self-doubt and second-guessing himself? I mean, it's not actually that hard to do that, to be honest, because we see him full of self-doubt and second-guessing himself all the time. But so much of his chapters to date have been info dumps about the past. If nothing else, I expect the news about John Connington and Aegon are going to expire. Many pages more of memories and kind of internal rabbit holes. So plenty of intrigue to look forward to and Barristan's point of view was introduced in dance specifically to help George untie the blasted Miranese knot which was a a writing knot that hindered the production of A Dance with Dragons as such Barristan might become more disposable given the influx of other POVs to Marine there's going to be a surplus so what are Barristan's chances of surviving the upcoming novel? Are there any character goals or plot points that he really needs to hit before George would want to or could be rid of him, Arjun? I'm not certain he will survive the entire length of Winds. However, he has become a living source of recent Westerosi history, which, witnessing so much of it firsthand. As such, he has almost by accident become an integral part to preparing Danny for her invasion of Westeros. I do believe that Tyrion will largely take over this role, however. Yet I can't help but feel there is some tantalizing tidbit of Targaryen family lore that he has not yet imparted to her. Perhaps some clue that will lead Danny to realize that she is the child of prophecy, the princess that was promised. Something Rhaegar said to him that he only realizes is important when the time comes. 
like we are lucky that unlike the show, George does not simply need to get rid of him in the books. He could simply stop using him as a POV for a time. And this is my hope. I want Barristan to face the Golden Company one last time from his point of view. There could be no better end for the truest knight of the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah, that would be cool for sure. Uh, I am also not convinced that Barristan is going to survive the Winds of Winter since the minor Miranese point of views, which are him and Victorian, are really prime candidates for being removed, written out, killed off, however they're dealt with. Uh, And I am definitely repeating myself from our last stream about Victorian, but we know that we're going to lose point of views. George has said said as much. So uh, I fear for Barristan in the, uh, in the old guessing game of, of who makes it through. Um, He ranks pretty low to be honest, in in my opinion, but I don't think he's going to die in battle and maybe not even in whatever political debacle takes place inside the city during and following the battle outside the walls. I would love for him to survive long enough to see Danny return, which in my opinion is going to be quite late in the book, and uh, to at least hear about Aegon, uh, so that some of those things that we were speculating about can play out. And if he survives to meet the Golden Company and dies in battle full of doubts about Rhaegar's son versus Rhaegar's sister, even better, because that would crystallize so many different aspects of his personality and his character development. But beyond that potential meeting, if that happens, I'm not sure that I see any kind of future plot arc after that. So sad to say, in my humble opinion, we are going to be saying R.I.P. Barry um, sooner than we'd probably all like. Barristan was really one of Cersei's major mistakes, so he's got to it's got to come to, come and bite her on the ass, right? Oh yes, please, thank you. For <laughs> <that>. <laughs> One can only hope. <laughs> well, honestly, I, I think that Barristan has emerged as a really important character. I, I don't know if George originally was designing to him to be as sort of pivotal as he is. In Marine now, he's our eyes and ears, so of course, essential, really. And as we've explored today, there are layers of thematics riding upon his shoulders. And his presence will be very important for Daenerys. He has a long and rich backstory. And overall, I get the impression that his story is not really close to being over. That's my personal opinion. I, I think we'll lose his POV, as Arjun said before too long, but I do expect him to remain on our pages for some time to come. I would like to see him lead Danny's troops against Aegon in an epic battle. Both of you have, you know, voiced your support for this scenario. And for George to build upon the inner conflict he instilled in Barristan that becomes so evident when we gain his internal voice. Overall, I personally hope that Barristan survives the Winds of Winter. I find his character very interesting on, you know, thematic levels and surface levels too. And expect the commentary of knighthood and honor versus duty and the ways in which this is all corrupted to continue in the Winds of Winter. Okay, guys. 
thank you all for being here today and I hope you enjoyed this live stream but don't leave us just yet our guest today is Arjun from the Deep Into History podcast. Arjun, why don't you tell us about your podcast? Tell us what you're up to. Tell us what you're all about. Thank you. Uh, Deep Into History is my quest to give a future to the past. You can learn about history anywhere, but come dream with me and experience it. I have a very special early episode for all of you called The Stag and the Dragon that will let you experience the Turnian Harrenhal and the Battle of the Trident through the eyes of Prince Lewin of Dorne. I promise you'll love it. And I came to know Yoke, Yoke Boy because he was kind enough to answer a few questions while I was doing research for that original script. The next episode in my acclaimed series, Versus, the saga of how the Republic of Rome fell to the Empire, will be out this week. So it's the perfect time to catch up. Deep into History is available on every podcast platform, and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, and Instagram, at Deep into History, to get your daily blast from the past or just chat. Guys, thank you so much for having me on. It has been so much fun and a true honor. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, we really enjoyed having you. And guys, do, do check out Deep Into History. Uh, I have done, and I promise that uh, if you like history, you are going to love it. So, uh, and thank you again. Thanks to everyone listening for being here, people in the chat. We appreciate you. And hello and thank you to our listeners in the future on the pre-recorded uh, video and also the podcast version, which should hit your airwaves within a couple a day or two here as far as what is next for radio westeros well you can catch us uh our in our fourth installment of our dance of the dragon series with history of westeros coming out very soon we're in the final uh, days of the production of that one and then our the final speaking of final episode of our primer series on all about Daenerys should be out next month. So that's what we're doing in Radio Westeros land. Don't forget to uh, check out our primer part nine for more of our thoughts about Barristan Salmi and also check out our Patreon and support us there if you are so inclined. We appreciate you all. Thanks to all of you for your support of these live streams. We'll be back with more. And a special shout out to our Discord and YouTube mods, our chat room mods here. You guys do such a great job and, you know, the show would not be able to continue without you. Thanks to each and every one of our patrons who support us. If you want to support us as a patron too, check out our Patreon campaign, which includes all manner of incentives, including personalized shout-outs and early releases. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye for now.